the the question I really wish they would ask is, should I even charge by the hour? Amen. To me, it's like a collective hallucination that that this is the way the professional services are bought and sold. Hi, I'm Joel Pilger, and you are listening to episode 65 of the Rev Thinking Podcast. Today, our guest is Jonathan Stark, and our topic is our issue with hourly. Welcome to Rev Thinking, the podcast for creative entrepreneurs who know the best way to deal with the future is to create it. This is the conversation between creative leaders and consultants discussing what it really takes to run a thriving creative business. Hi from Savannah, Rev Thinkers. Good to be with you, all you fabulous creative entrepreneurs. I've spent a really great week here in Savannah at SCAD, speaking with students and working with faculty and administration on some really cool things they have going on in this very, very special place. So thank you to everyone at SCAD, to you students who showed up and participated on all the events. A few quick announcements. Uh, Obviously, today's episode, really pumped to have Jonathan Stark with us on the podcast. He is an expert. He comes from software, which is a little weird. You're like, why are we going to listen to a guy from software? But we're going to talk about hourly and our issue with hourly as in hourly rates and hourly billing. But first, a few quick announcements. Uh, One in San Francisco next week, dinner with Rev Think. So Tim Thompson, Jason Fletcher, and myself, we three consultants from RevThink will be in town and we are doing a dinner. If you did not get an invite and you were expecting one, certainly reach out to us. And while we're in town, of course, anyone wants to reach out to us in the San Francisco market, hit me up. Jumpstart, the current class is winding down and it has been fantabulous. (laughs) It's been, gosh, nothing against all the previous attendees and members of that accelerator that have been through that program. But this class, wow, it's been really special. And the engagement has been like all time high. So everyone's been learning how to take their creative firm to the next level. Uh, The next class is going to get cranking up soon. I'm excited, of course, about that. So keep your ear to the ground about Jumpstart in case you might want to be jumping into that next accelerator. Also, I'm going to mention, do you know that I publish, I author a weekly email. You may not know this. We call it the Rev Thinking Weekly Insight email. But if you're listening to the podcast and you're like, hey, how do I get more? I'd love to stay in the loop with what's coming out of my brain, what's going on with Rev Think. I encourage you to go to revthink.com slash start. That's where you can subscribe to that email newsletter. Well, I shouldn't even call it a newsletter. It's really a weekly insight. It's just a simple nugget from me and whatever's on my mind, what's going on. Uh, So check that out. One other little announcement is we, as in RevThink, we're heading back to Moldova. Some of you know that we've been working with the country of Moldova on behalf of USAID, that's US Foreign Aid, and the country of Sweden to help foster and stir up the creative sector of that economy. And RevThink is headed back there later at the end of this summer, early fall. And man, it's going to be really, really cool. More news, more announcements to come, but I just want to let you guys know that it's coming and it's going to be really special. Lastly, do you have any topics or ideas or guests that you would love to have on the podcast? Please let me know. You can just email me, joel at revthink.com. I always love hearing from 
listeners and would love your ideas and feedback. Okay, finally, a word from our sponsor. I want to say thank you to the Alliance of Content and Design Companies. That is ACDC. You can find out more about them at theacdc.com. And now to our episode with Jonathan Stark. I'll, uh, I'll let the episode take care of itself. I want to get right into it because this is a long one. This is over an hour because Jonathan and I have so much to discuss. But just know this. Our topic is our issue with hourly. What is it about charging by the hour and structuring your creative business based on hourly billing that is so harmful to your business over the long term? Well, you're going to find out in my conversation with Jonathan Stark. All right, Jonathan, good to have you on the Rev Thinking show today. Hey, nice to meet you, <laughs> everyone out there. Uh, thanks for having me on. I'm really excited. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you're here. And I can already, I can just say right from the start that some people are going to ask, why is a guy from software development talking to RevThink today? And we'll, we'll answer that question. <laughs> so I'm excited to have you here because I first, I think, got introduced to you through Chris Doe's uh, show on the future. And I'm guessing the stuff that you had to say probably got his audience pretty fired up. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had a huge spike in my mailing list signups after that. The first live stream, it was he's got a great audience, and so now I have a whole bunch of new design people to talk to about you know ditching hourly billing and pricing your work. Well, that's that's a great segue for me to read this quick, quick brief bio about you, um, which I I pulled from your website that says Jonathan built his con- solo consultancy by ditching hourly billing for value pricing. And he has a decade of real-world experience successfully applying value-based theories to software development projects. And he teaches others how to do the same. So you come from software development. Why am I talking to a guy from software development? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the thing is that it's the de, facto, the de facto way that people charge for their services across like tons of industries, pretty much all independent professionals, the default approach to making money at what you do is to sort of go from probably an in-house position that you become dissatisfied with and you think, ah, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to go out of my own. I'm going to do this myself. And the first question that most people have is how much should I charge by the hour? And the, the question I really wish they would ask is, should I even charge by the hour? Amen. Yeah. yeah sure. I mean, to me, it's like a collective hallucination that, that this is the way that professional services are bought and sold. So yeah, that's a, that's a great, Point, and I'll say this because most of our audience are owners of studios and production companies. And although they may be running a multi million dollar a year company, mm-hmm. it's interesting how many of them started as I was an employee, then I became a freelancer where I charged the day rate, which is right. again hourly. And then when I started my business, I started doing bids and proposals all off of some sort of hourly or time based formula. And it's amazing how many of them are running multi-million dollar studios that are still stuck in that as their pricing model. Right. And do you see that pattern in in other spaces? Oh, everywhere. Yeah. So it's huge in software development. Like you said, that's my background. Uh, It's the, that's the way pretty much everybody does it, but it's the same with um, designers, web design, logo design, calligraphy, copywriting, uh, accounting, legal. I mean, Pretty much, that's the that's the the way that people think that you do it. 
And I'm here to tell you that there's a, a way better way that builds profits into the equation so that you can actually get ahead. I mean, your, your listener is probably familiar with the feeling of it feels like they're working harder and harder and harder than ever, but they're not getting ahead. It's almost like they don't have time to get ahead because they've got so much client work and they're trying to build more hours to make more money and then they run out of hours. That's right. And they get confused and stuck and they don't know what to do next. And, and that happened to me. And when the light bulb went on and I was like, oh, it's the hourly thing. And I changed that and it just, like my business just doubled in the first year. It was amazing. Well, it's funny because I think after I heard about you and I saw you on the future, um, I somehow got pointed to your website or something. And mm -hmm. I remember being very intrigued just to see how you talked about value pricing. Mm -hmm. And so I signed up for your, is it a daily email that you send out? I think. Yep. Yeah, more or less daily, which is impressive in and, in and of itself. Because I've got about 950 in a row. <laughs> well, okay, so I'm not surprised because I was immediately just intrigued by your emails because you're actually writing them on a mm -hmm. daily basis. Right. And I turned some of the people on, on my team onto them, and it's one of the few daily emails that we actually read. I mean, I still get Thank it every you. day. Yeah, and it's funny because I'm like, why am I reading a – a, you know, email from a guy that's in the software development space, but it's because you have such a great way of capturing the essence of the hourly trap and how to start this value conversation. And I think really the opportunity for all creative entrepreneurs to make this leap as I think you and I are kindred spirits on this mission to take the hourly <laughs> yeah. billing model out back and shoot it and just kill right. it forever. Mm-hmm. It forces clients to think about you as a pair of hands. It's like, it's the, you know, you get a lot. I talk a lot of creatives, you know, how do I get my clients to understand the value of what I do? And I'm like, well, the first thing would be to start acting like you're valuable, present a price and then and stop renting yourself out by the hour as if you're shoveling snow. Of course. Well, that'd be a good start. So let's hit a couple of quick highlights just about you. So people maybe understand just a little bit more and, and I'll, I'll sort of call this a speed round because obviously okay. we, we want to move on to an even more interesting topic as mm -hmm. we, as we get into the conversation sure. where I want to talk about scale and some other things, but mm -hmm. just to give people a, a, a sense of, of you, um, you were in software development and then I think, am I right? You started working independently or then you started a consultancy. Give us the, the quick, sure. quick, the quick story is I was in house at uh, Staples uh, you know, corporate DBA job, uh, became dissatisfied, went solo, or wanted to go solo. Uh, um, sorry, I didn't go solo immediately. I went to a um, consulting firm that needed the kind of skills that I did. And I got a front row seat for about three years of how it worked, how consulting worked, how, how you attracted clients, how you closed deals, how you wrote proposals, how you operated a project, all of that sort of thing that you don't get when you're in-house. But that was an hourly position. And as I worked my way up that company, I quickly became the vice president and I was managing everybody. And I was constantly chasing them for hours and arguing with clients about hours entries and, and estimating hours on proposals, which ended up being too low. And it was very frustrating because I didn't feel like I had any reliable way to deliver customer satisfaction uh, in that model. It just felt like I was always disappointing people and I couldn't figure out how to change it. I couldn't figure out how to get a handle on scope creep when you're managing a team, um, change orders. It's just, it, it just was very frustrating. It didn't feel like we were partnering with clients. And, um, at one point 
the, it occurred to me that our best developer, who was very fast, wrote bulletproof code first time out of the gate, and, and we were paying a ton of money to, we were probably actually barely breaking even on him because he was so fast and we built yep. him out at an hourly rate. And then our, our junior person, practically an intern, we were printing money with him because he was slow and his code was buggy and he would have to keep fixing it. But he was brilliant with his, his clients and they were very happy with him. And he would, you know, a project that would have taken the first guy a week took the second guy six months and we were paying him half what we were paying the best guy. So I was like, this doesn't track. And, and it, I thought about it for a long time before I recognized what the issue was. And, and that was the thing. So if you, the, the thing about hourly billing is it, it points you away from getting faster or more efficient or higher quality with your work. It's like a financial incentive to be slow and bad. And I, and I know your viewers don't want to be slow and bad and they don't consider themselves to be slow and bad, but there, you have to think about the inherent tension between being good and fast and charging for your time because you're just cutting your income and people say, well, I'll raise my hourly rate, but we can talk about that. Right. Well, we'll and we, we should at least touch on that because I think you're right. The incentive structure is actually upside down. Mm-hmm. And I think, do you find that the, maybe the reason that we're programmed to think in these terms is most of us had jobs at some point and we were paid for our time. So we naturally think about charging for our time. Plus most of the costs that we incur, whether you're running a business or not, are time-based. I pay rent every month. I pay my internet bill every month, whatever the case might be. Is mm-hmm. that where some of this programming comes from that traps us in this thinking? I think it is an ingrained employee style mentality that, uh, I mean, I don't have any science or data to back this up, but you know, growing up, it's probably not uncommon for people to work in a McDonald's or in a warehouse or something like that when you're unskilled labor is typically paid for by the hour. So, and, it, and it's, it's a model that seems inherently fair on the surface, but I, would, I could actually argue, I can make a good case for the fact that it's incredibly unfair in cases where you're doing actual knowledge work, where you have some expertise that is valuable. Uh, it, it's actually not fair, in my opinion, uh, especially when it comes to you know, uh, projects. What I would call a project is like a, an ongoing non-trivial collaboration between uh, a client and yourself uh, that is designed to achieve a particular outcome. And usually they take at least three months, like a, a project, you know, a real project. Yep. Uh, but they can, they can go on much longer than that. They can go 18 months, let's say, uh, before it starts to break into phases. But I think it's actually unfair to build by the, to, to say to somebody, um, not really sure how much it's going to cost. It'll probably be about a million dollars, but who knows? you know, and, and then get started and then get six months into something and find out you're, you know, you're only halfway done, but you're hundred percent of the way through the estimate. To me, that's horribly unfair. And it puts the client in a terrible position that creates what we typically refer to as clients from hell. They turn into micromanagers. They, they try and, you know, grab the steering wheel out of your hands while you're trying to drive. And it, it turns into disaster. I, I think there are statistics to say that at least software projects, 50% of software projects fail or go over budget by a hundred percent. That's not wow. fair. Yeah, that's no, not, that's not fair. It's, it's well, almost unethical. I think you're right. There's something inherent in the hourly billing method that almost sets up for acrimonious relationships between mm-hmm. you and your clients. And nobody likes to admit this, right? Because when you first close the deal, it's the honeymoon phase. It's going to be great. But I think if people are honest, when they see projects as they 
go and there starts to be scope creep and changes and all this, that if you have any kind of a hourly model, even if it was a, the first, like in, in our industry, it's a not to exceed bid. Oof. So it might be, it might be a $50,000 project, but if, right. if, if how you arrived at $50,000 was hourly, you're really setting yourself up for a big disagreement when those change orders and scope creep and all these things start to happen. Mm -hmm. And like you said, this is often towards the end of the project when you as the agency start to say, what, what's going on? Why, why is this so hard and why are people so mad? Why can't we, why does everything kind of go off the rails? Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah and and it, it, so it's, go ahead. It's what's, what's your, it's a hundred percent because the financial incentives are misaligned. They're polar opposite. And I know your audience is, ethical and they, they don't pad their hours and they don't, they don't think that they're taking longer than they need to. They, they think they're working as fast as they possibly can. But the, the nature of hourly billing and the fact that you start off by trying to estimate the scope of work, that whole conversation and the whole, the whole procedure that you go through to create an estimate is the wrong conversation to have. It's like, it's like spending two hours with, you know, let's say you're, you, you sit down with a, a client and they're talking to you about a project and you're going to bill per keystroke, not per hour. <laughs> right. How many keystrokes do you think this is going to take? You know? And it's like, well, okay, well, let's talk about that. Mm. And you start making estimations. And before you know it, you're having a big conversation about like how you could optimize your keystrokes. I'm like, well, do you charge for pressing the delete key or does that... Does that count? And all of a sudden you're having this conversation about something that has nothing to do with the goals that they're trying to achieve, or if they even know what goals they're trying to achieve, it just sets the whole thing up for failure. And that's what keeps me up at nights because it yes. used to be me. That used to be me. And now that I've seen the other way, you know, the, the, the clouds parted and the light came down, I was like, oh wow. So if we talk about how to satisfy the customer, if I talk upfront about what's going to satisfy the customer, lo and behold, I can satisfy the customer. Hmm, wow. How about that? Yeah. That's imagine. Yeah. Instead of me dribbling around, you know, in the darkness doing tricks with the basketball, pretending like, Oh, I'll just throw it over here and throw it over there. And like, like best practices. And I have no idea where the goal is. You know? so, so let's pretend I run say a studio or an agency. And mm -hmm. if you are a client, here's a typical scenario because mm -hmm. a typical client might, you might come to me and say, Hey Joel, I want to hire your, motion design studio, we have to launch a new product and we're going to need a video, some sort of a mm -hmm. cool animated video to, to, to promote that. Yep. What, what would that cost? Right. That's what you ask. And right. so now, well, and now well, usually, usually they don't say what would it cost? Usually ask what your hourly rate is. <laughs> well, it's true. You might say, what's the hourly rate and how many hours might it take you Therefore, Right. No, they actually don't usually ask how many hours. Usually the, well, you tell me this yeah. is the way it works in software development In software development. They'll say, they'll say, Hey, um, got your name from a friend. I need somebody to build me a website. Um, what's your hourly rate? And that's the whole conversation. I see. Sure. That, that yeah. First no, thing. yeah d it's different in our space because someone sort of knows upfront, okay, this is probably going to be a 20 or 40, thousand dollar assignment to create this thing so they okay. kind of know they're already they're already fishing for what might that cost mm -hmm. but here's here's the trick right is for me as the agency in this case right I, i'm often being asked to throw out a number based on a completely undefined subjective deliverable called some sort of a cool video or animated right. thing so it's even worse because if you and i were going to sit down and figure out what's the scope 
how many keystrokes or whatever yeah. it might take to do that. I don't mm -hmm. even know what I'm making yet. So often right. people create these things called bids or mm -hmm. quotes or proposals, which right. are things like, well, we don't know even know what we're making, but mm -hmm. we think it's going to, your deadline is in a month. There's, there's <laughs> right. 160 hours. We're going to work right. 160 hours at 150 bucks an hour. Here's your proposal. I guess it's going to cost about whatever that is, $26,000. Yeah. And, and there, the, there you go. And so why, how can we be better? <laughs> right. Yeah. We'll, we'll put nine pregnant ladies on it and have the baby in a month. So <laughs> exactly. I got to what you just described, uh, it's not from that's old. Um, but the, the, what you just described is 180 degrees backwards from how I do it. If somebody comes to me and says, Hey, how much would it cost for, you know, and they give you some really vague, how much would it cost for like 30 second, a 30 second video? And my answer would be, I don't know, but would you mind jumping on a phone call so we can talk about, um, like what you're trying to accomplish or what you know already about the project? Like what are the facts so far? And if they're not willing to do that, then I'm not willing to work with them. So, you know, that we could get into a conversation about like how to put yourself in a position where you can say no to leads and can say no to clients that aren't going to be a good fit. But let's just assume you're in a position where you don't have to take everything that comes through the door. Okay, great. Yep. So you jump on a phone call with them and they'll brain dump to you about like all the things that they know. And it would be very tactical. It'll be very specific. It'll almost be weirdly specific. Like we know there needs to be a lot of blue in it, you know, Right. And they'll have all these, correct me if I'm wrong, cause I'm, yeah. I'm just, but they'll have these weirdly specific things, but they'll fail to ever tell you why they're doing it or what the goals are or, or anything like that. Like how it's going to improve their business or what the strategy is because all of that stuff is either obvious to them or, or they don't know it. And, and it was, you're talking to the wrong person. So I'll let them brain dump for like 15, 20 minutes and I'll take notes of everything. It's all probably going to be useful information at some point, but we haven't talked about what I need to know yet. And I might have some sense of scope, but that doesn't even matter to me at this point. I'm not going to base my quote on scope. Like I'm, I'm accidentally going to get a sense of the scope and I know it's going to be probably wrong because it's like impossible to know perfectly. It's going to be probably wrong. My hope is to get it sort of close, but the real thing I'm trying to do is understand, well, here's what I would say. Once they finish brain dumping and they, I feel like they've exhausted themselves and got everything off their chest. I'll say, wow, that's great. I got three pages of notes here already can we step back a little bit and, you know, I don't know your business. Can we kind of put this in the context of your overall business? Like how does this work with your overall strategy? What's your overall strategy? Why would you, what happens if you don't do this? Why not not do this? And uh, they'll usually, they'll say, oh, well, that's a good question. And hopefully you're talking to the right person and they'll know the answer. If not, then you're going to, you can talk about getting past gatekeepers. But um, let's say you're talking to a founder or president or someone in charge of a big department and they actually have budgetary control. Then they'll say, well, you know, our competitors just released this new thing and they're making a push into this new space, which kind of steps on our toes. And this is kind of an important thing for us. And we believe that we've self-prescribed that creating this, this video or these motion graphics are going to somehow protect our turf from this customer that's encroaching. You might hear that and be like, and to yourself, be like, this isn't going to help with that. Like, I don't see any connection between the two things. Like these, per these people are prescribing the wrong medicine for their disease, mm -hmm. but maybe they aren't. Maybe, but what I want to do in the meeting is, is gain some confidence that the stuff that they think they want me to do is actually going to move some needle for their business. So I go through what I call a why conversation. Like, why would we, why do this? Why not something else? Why do this now? Is this urgent or can you put it off and study it and decrease the risk of it failing by, by learning more first? And then why would you hire someone expensive like me when you could obviously go to Fiverr or you, you, you mentioned that you have some talent in-house, why not use them? And what I do with this why conversation is 
I raise every possible objection they would have to the proposal that I may or may not uh, going to be writing in the next day or two. So I, I don't want to write a proposal without having raised all the potential objections to what will be probably the highest price they'll get from anybody. So I want to know what all those objections are up front. Otherwise, I'm not going to write the proposal because who wants to write a proposal that's just not going to get it approved? Yeah, sure. Well, one word that you use back there that, man, I'm in love with is self-prescribed, mm -hmm. right? And, and I think there's a fear, even if you're talking about 100,000 or million dollar projects, that there's a fear that if you, that if you call the client out, mm -hmm. that they've self-prescribed their problem and therefore the solution is this, therefore we have this project need. That if you ask these questions, that one, you might look dumb, or two, you might look like you're challenging them. Mm -hmm. but, but what I find is if you don't raise those questions, obviously in a, a polite and, and courteous way. Yeah, polite, obviously, yeah. Yeah, that it's only going to come back and really bite you later. Yeah, because you, right? you start, you get to work without knowing what they're trying to accomplish. They know what they're trying to accomplish. You want to find out what it is. You know, like they, they know it. They, so you can, it's a question that if, if I can't, if I get to the end of a, a conversation like this and I can't, I have no sense of how they're going to get some positive ROI out of my, you know, strategic advisory on their, I used to do mobile consulting, you know, for mobile websites and that kind of thing. If I don't, if I see no, no positive ROI for them, I'll, I'll just flat out say like, look, you guys, I would love to work with you. You'd be a great client. I feel like we're clicking here but I just can't make a business case for you writing me a million dollar check, you know, sort of facetiously say, how, how are you, why? I don't get it. There's no business case here. By the what way, I that, putting that million dollars out there is a nice anchor. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I think that you're right. And there's, there's even this, um, I, I can't remember who said it. Um, maybe I'm quoting or re-quoting Blair Enns, who said, people that don't talk about money don't make it. Right. And I so it was, Blair, yeah. it was, it might've been Blair. And I thought that was really smart that um, bringing up those objections early, bringing them up often actually shows that you're an expert and that you right. have the, you have the clients back so that hopefully I'm, I'm guessing what you're saying is by the time you put together a proposal, you really have already sort of figured out all of the issues, the why you've answered all the objections so that the mm -hmm. piece of paper is just like that little end formality called, great, we're going to do this. Right. So uh, a couple of things, like if you let the client push you around in the sales process, it should be no surprise when they push you around during the project. And if you're actually good at what you do, you don't want that because they're, you're the good driver. They're, they know their business. You know your business. You know what you do. They're hiring you because you're an expert or hopefully they are. And if they are doing that, you don't want the patient to be grabbing the scalpel. Well, like, you that's not good. You wrote, uh, I, I'll call it an article, I think, called The Taxi or The Taxi Cab or yeah. something mm -hmm. like that. And I would recommend anyone listening, go find that. I don't know if you could just Google. Yeah. I think it's called Stark. The Cab Ride. The Cab Ride, okay. Mm -hmm. But that was such a great encapsulation of what you just described about the, essentially the, the client who's trying to push you around and dictate mm -hmm. terms early on is going to be a bad client. We just don't like to admit it, right? Because we want the money. We're, we want the we're, money. Right. We're, we're starved or desperate yep. for cash or something like that. So therefore we get into bad situations that could have been avoided earlier in the process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the big objections um, when I'm working with people and they, they intellectually, they're like, wow, you're right. But 
you know, I, I can't imagine how am I going to do it? How am I, I'm going to get killed if I give a fixed price. I've given fixed price before I've gotten killed. And I'm like, they're almost always coming from a position, like a poverty mentality position where they've just barely been getting by for so long that they're almost like they've been beaten down and they can't imagine this idea of walking into a meeting with some negotiating power. Like, like that, that concept alone is mind blowing to people to be able to walk away from, you know, like anybody that comes through the door that can fog a mirror does not necessarily make them a good client for you. It might be a terrible client for you because they're bad or because you're not qualified to achieve what they need. And you said it, but you need the money. So how ethical is that? Right. When you know, you can see these red flags, but man, that mortgage payment's coming up pretty soon. <laughs> Great to right. get a deposit. Or, right. and, and here's what we'll get to later, right? Is this idea of, yeah, but I've got a team and I have to make payroll and same, that, yeah, same that problem. Clock, yeah, that clock is ticking. Mm-hmm. It's, this, it's what we call in, with, in RevThink, just this addiction to cash. And solving it is not always just taking what's right there and setting yourself up for really a bad situation that's going to put you in a position down the road that really doesn't serve you or the client. And hourly, clearly, I, I think is that, and you say it very, very well. The problem with hourly is the margins are almost always razor thin. So you're just, you're constantly, you're constantly barely getting by. So as you add, you know, if you're the, if, I'm sort of a soloist, but if you, if you start adding headcount, uh, it's hard to, you know, then you have to add layers of management, all these processes, and it takes time and it costs money. And that, you know, as you scale up, it's like a linear, it, you want you want a sort of geometric increase in your profits. You don't want linear increase in your profit. Like if you, if you have the option between ge- geometric and linear increase in your profitability, you're going to want geometric. And the other thing that the other thing that I see with um, folks who have employees is they'll always talk about their revenue. They don't talk about their profits. Mm-hmm. Like sure. somebody could be doing ten million dollars a year, but if it's costing them eleven, I don't want that business. That's right. Like revenue is a vanity metric. It's, it's good for certain things, but you really want to be profitable. And if you're not increasing your profitability, I don't think you're growing in, or at least in a way that's attractive. Well, I would ask this question. If you're a creative entrepreneur and say you're running a $2 million a year studio and you are paying yourself well and paying yourself distributions, say you're putting $300,000 uh, compensating yourself every year. Mm-hmm. If you grow to 4 million, if that doesn't double, let's say that your compensation only goes up to 5%, 10%, is that really worth doing? Because you're actually taking on a lot more risk. And so this is, I think, a, a great point. Maybe. Yeah, so the, the thing I'll say about that is, is that some people like having a team, they operate better that way, they are great managers, they're amazing bosses, they're great leaders. I'm not against that at all. I'm not saying that everything should be about profit and that's it. Like, like that's not what I'm saying. The thing that, the thing that I probably the thing that I like the least about hourly billing is that people who would really rather be soloists see it as see hiring as the only path to growth because they're like, I've maxed out my hourly rate. There's no way I'm, I'm at, let's say $250 an hour. I'm at $250 an hour for like calligraphy or something. 
like, okay, how do I, I cannot go higher. I will, I'm not getting gigs. I tried 350, nobody's going for it. So the only thing I can do is get a bunch of juniors who aren't as good as me, but only build themselves out at like $50 an hour. And I muck up the time and sell that. Now I'm a manager who doesn't want to be a manager. That I think is, is awful. Okay. So now we're getting to a really great, interesting question that I was so excited to start cracking this nut with you Mm -hmm. because I would say it's a very classic situation that somebody that runs a studio, a production company, they can, can grow a little bit, have a maybe one or two, three people on their team. And then they go out and they land that big job. And they say, sweet, hey, we just, we, we took, you know, Joel's or Jonathan's yeah. advice. We did this value pricing thing and we just landed this $400,000 commercial. Now we got to go produce it. Mm-hmm. And then their next thought is, well, should we hire, right? Should we hire people? Because the options seem like, well, we, if we just hire a bunch of freelancers, we're going to burn, pay a much higher premium. So we should hire people instead, but they don't know how to navigate those those two options. And they think those are the only options. So let's right. just say, let's say I just won a big project, you know, maybe it's $400,000. And my next thought is, well, now I need to scale up because if I go land another one and another one, that's my goal. That's my dream. Then I'm going right. to need a bunch of employees. So I should go get a bunch of juniors, right? Maybe. I mean, if you, if you are trying to build, like if that is your thing, you know, if, if, if you just like the idea of being responsible for the livelihood of all these people, you have this sort of paternal and maternal instinct and you just like having a big team and for whatever reason, and I'm not talking about feeding your ego, I'm talking about genuinely that kind of a player, then I'm not against it. But the idea of hiring people it kind of tactically, like full-time employees, like tactically and just imagining that, well, I landed this one big project, I'll, obviously I'll continue landing more. Wouldn't it be better to say, land that, again, this is assuming you're not just trying to add headcount for the headcount sake, but if you're in the exact question that you just described, what if instead of that, you didn't staff up, you hired freelancers and you took a little bit of a hit on the, um, you know, margin because they're a little bit more pricey. They're a lot less risky and there's no onboarding. There's a million trade-offs there, but let's just say you go with the freelancers and another big project comes through, what if you just said, well, we're in the middle of a huge project for this really impressive client. We'd love to do your project too. Um, Can we do it in three months? And start booking in advance. So you're not constantly like trying to land deals and start them right that second. And yeah, you're gonna lose some clients because they're like, no, 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 we need it done yesterday. So then you could have a conversation. So first of all, you're appearing like you're in demand. You're appearing like you're fine to walk away from the work. You know, Nike comes along and says, hey, we really need you guys. Sorry, we're doing this thing for Target right now. Uh, We'd love to do your thing too. Um, We can schedule you in in the summer. And uh, no, it needs to be done before that. It's like, well, I mean, we do have an alternative for you. It's rush service. It's a lot more expensive. But if you really want to work with us, we can talk about that. And they're like, well, yeah, let's talk about that. Now, okay, now you can maybe get another whole team of freelancers and charge 800000 for that one. And then you have like tons of margin. You're not going to care about whether or not it's freelancers or employees because the, the, the markup, not the markup, but like the margin that you're getting back on it is like, is so big. You're like, whatever. It's just not that important. Well, and of course, I think if you're, if I'm reading you right, that when you start that conversation with Nike, um, it's not just 
purely a rush charge, but it also might be an opportunity to have an even higher value conversation called, well, of course, we're going to have to do this quickly and, and sort of squeeze this into our schedule, which, which makes some of the parameters tight. But you're, I would just say when you're in that luxurious position of, gosh, we're busy right now, do we take on another project? Your mindset should immediately be, what's the most value we could possibly create and charge for in this situation? Because we're busy. Yeah. So if they bite and they say, yes, the job is yours, you're like, I, a lot of times I find clients who are amazed who, when their client says, yes, okay, we'll, we'll do the $800,000 job. Mm -hmm. Because they just thought, well, there's no way they're going to go for this. Right. I'll give this high price because they'll definitely say no, but I don't want to actually say no. Right. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's a good way. You always want the client to say no, not you. Uh, but yeah, do you find that happens sometimes that even though you're putting this rather ridiculous premium on the value you're going to create, that the, sometimes the buyer says, okay, let's do it. Oh, it happens all the time because people, when I first start working with them, they're so used to thinking about their creating a fixed price. Um, like people will say that they're value pricing when they're new to it, when really they're just, they're just doing time and materials. So that are cost plus. So they'll think like, yeah, I'm going to do value pricing. And so they, they get a client, client comes to them. They have the initial sales interview. They ask all the wrong questions. They ask all scope questions and they think, ah, this probably takes 300 hours. They multiply it by their hourly rate. They tack on 15% or some random percentage for project man, you know, management. Right. And that, or like, like scope creep 15%. Yeah. Right. And they, but the problem is they have asked all the wrong questions. They haven't gotten any of the correct answers and uh, it's too low. So, but when they're working with me, I will not let them submit a proposal that only has one price on it. So I'll say, all right, here's the thing. So they came to you, you think, you know, let's just say it works out to whatever 50 grand is the, the base option. The thing that the client thinks they're hiring the person for. Then I'll say, okay, um, you can give that as a fixed price. It's fine. That's option one. Option two is going to be 2.2, whatever that first number is. So $120,000 option two. They'll be like, well, what can I do that's going to be worth $120,000? I'll say, well, let's talk about it. What are they trying to do? What can you, what, what value add can you sort of um, offer on top of this base thing that they asked for? So maybe, you know, for, I don't know, for a design, well, for a software project, it's usually like the, the bottom level thing is they want you to build something. The middle level tier could be something like, um, uh, extended user testing so that you maximize adoption with internal employees who are going to have to be using the system, documentation for internal employees and training for, to get them on the new system. Or it could be something like migrating the data from the old system to the new system. And, you know, and so you put this, you, it doesn't, whatever your listeners would add on as a, as a, a bigger option, it's not more of option one, it's a different option that is over and above what would be included in option one. And you like significantly more money, more than double. And then the top level option, come up with something that, what did I say? 50,000. So come up with something for a quarter of a million for option three. So, you know, I know you guys are expecting a $50,000 budget. Uh, so here's that, but you've also got this $120,000 option and here's this $250,000 option that includes aftercare strategy. Maybe it's user experience testing with your, your customers who will be using this system. Um, maybe it's focus group, whatever it is. So it's additional stuff that you say, hmm, if I had a quarter of a million dollars to help Nike with this campaign that they want these videos for, what else could I do to ensure the success of the campaign? 
to help decrease the risk of it failing. Just be creative. You're creatives, right? Be creative. Right. Come up, come up with a credible story that might be worth a quarter of a million dollar investment from Nike or whoever the client is. And when I'm working with, to tie it back to your original question, when I'm working with folks who are new to this, uh, and they give these three options, their option one price is usually so low because they're used to doing uh, time and materials or cost plus that they'll sell the option three because the client's like, well, we might as well. I mean, these prices are, you know, because they wouldn't be as high as what I'm saying. It'd be like, well, 1,000 and like 2,200 and then like $5,000 for the top tier. Right. I'd say, sure, here's 5,000. And, and, and on top of it, to blow your mind even more, I tell them to ask for 100% upfront. And it's like 80% of the time, the client's like, yeah, check's in the mail. When can you start? And yes, like, I love that game. It's, it's amazing <laughs> when, yeah, when, when people start to really think through the, the underlying whys and they're really solving the deeper problem that the client realizes, gosh, I can really trust this person. There's really expertise here. And why mm -hmm. wouldn't I pay whatever it is that I need to pay in order to really help secure the return, whether I'm going to, it's cost savings or revenue generation or these emotional contributions like you're going right. to raise my prestige. You're going to help me win an award. You're going to help me get a promotion. Yeah, I get mean, my Netflix stars up. There, there's all these intangible measurements that we do all the time. It doesn't have to be bottom line, you know, revenue, or it doesn't have to be bottom line. It doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be dollars. We we have all sorts of measurements that are perfectly valid for intangible things like satisf customer satisfaction, like net promoter score, or you know, star ratings on Amazon or Netflix. Those are valuable. Like if you have five stars on Amazon, forget about it. Like if I could prompt you that I could get you to, or I could, I could help you get to five stars on Amazon for your product, that would be worth something to you. And the more, uh, the more, um, uh, I can guarantee it, the more it's worth. So that's I mean? right. So yeah. I love like, that. Yeah. Yeah. What are some of the, what are some of the dimensions of, uh, I call them emotional contributions that you find like such as I'm not, I can't, I can't guarantee you a five-star rating, but I can certainly right. help you and I can show you a case study where we've done something like that. What are, what are some of the other maybe think dimensions that people don't think about when they're trying to price value? Right. Um, well, the whole thing is about risk. The whole, the whole, the reason they're hiring you almost everything in the buying decision is all about risk. It's not about, you know, people will have conversations on the surface about like, well, that seems like a lot. It shouldn't, you know, that's, that, that price seems really high. You know, it, it should only take you a hundred hours at the most. So that would work out to like $500 an hour. That doesn't seem fair. Like that's the totally wrong conversation. What you want to be talking about is like, what is the desired outcome? And like I said, it could be very tangible. Like we want to sell more on our Shopify site. You know, we want to sell more sneakers. Or it could be something intangible like our employee morale is in the garbage and it's gonna, it's, it's, we're just churning through employees like crazy. It's costing us a fortune. Well, there I go, tie it back to money. But, but it could just be that, uh, here's, here's your question. You want to, you want to get, I'm big on offering guarantees of some kind. That doesn't necessarily mean a money back guarantee. It doesn't necessarily mean that I'm gonna guarantee you the first spot in Google's search rankings for certain keywords. But you can work with the client in that first meeting and say, what's the desired outcome? Oh, the desired outcome is this downstream thing like, like, um, like we create this startup and it gets bought by Google for a billion dollars in three years. Now, me as a software developer or me as a, a marketer or me as a designer, I can't guarantee any of that. There are way too many things between, I, I could do an amazing job and the company, the founder could still screw everything up. Yeah, of course. Mm -hmm. There's a million 
yet. But what can I control? What are the things that I know I can control? What are the things that I would be mortified if I didn't deliver? What is the thing that I feel like is in my wheelhouse? So let's say it's, um, let's say I can, I'm confident that I can create a user experience that will test brilliantly with your target market. So like maybe that doesn't turn into a Google acquisition later. That's your problem. But I guarantee I can make a delightful product that people will love to use. and will beat all your competitors. I guarantee it. Mm-hmm. So if, you, if, if the client agrees that incredibly high user satisfaction is a leading indicator for a future acquisition, then they're going to value it. They're going to value it a lot. They're not going to say it's worth a billion dollars or anything like that, but they're going to value it because they see it as, as a necessary precondition for their, their objective. It fits within their strategy for achieving this objective. We are going to be the best shoe store experience for, uh, you know, males between 18 and 25. Like, not, like it, can you deliver that? If you think so, great. If you can deliver something else, that's fine too. But you need to map it to the, the downstream objective that the client is trying to achieve. Well, there's a, here's a common scenario in, in our industry where you might have a decision maker that is, say, a creative director at a television network or a company like Netflix or something like that. And mm-hmm. he's, he's trying to decide whether or not, or she's trying to decide whether or not, you're the right agency that can deliver this amazing whiz-bang say it's a show title or something like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what's interesting is they're still making a decision. I think you've made a strong case. They're still making a decision based on a risk equation. Even, mm-hmm. if, even if their desired outcome is, well, I want to look cool. I want to create something amazing that bolsters my reputation. I want to win an award. I want to get a promotion. These are yep. still all risk equations going in their mind. Am I right? Mm-hmm. Sure. And, and the idea is to uncover the one that's motivating them. And you, you, that's a great example because you also threw in personal motivations. I want to look good for my boss. I want to look cool. I want to win an award. Those may or may not contribute to the overall brand, like Netflix's success, but it's almost like two levels, depending on who you're working with. If you're working with anyone who's not at the very tip top of the organization, there's probably, there's almost certainly some sort of professional goal uh, in their mind as well. The key thing is there, we have a tendency as, as experts at whatever it is that we do in a meeting to make huge assumptions about why someone would want an expert to do, like us to do this thing. Giant assumptions. Like with software developers, it's always like, well, you obviously want to minimize data entry. You obviously want to you know, make things run faster. You obviously want the website to be faster. Yeah, but why? Like, why does this particular person want it? Why did they come to me for this? It's not for all of the possible reasons. It's for one specific one, probably. So if you can uncover in the, the meeting, before you even write a proposal, what the, the objectives, what the motivation, what, what's the why? Why are we even sitting here? Why not not do this? What will happen if nobody does this? What will happen if we don't do this? What will happen if you don't hire someone expensive like me? What will happen if you use a junior? And raise all those objections. They will tell you. If you're talking to the right person, they will tell you the answers to those questions. And if they can convince you that you should, do, you should work with them, then great. But it might be that they don't, you know, it, it doesn't happen that often, but sometimes you'll be in a meeting and you'll say something like, well, why don't you just use this off the shelf thing? And they're like, oh, I didn't know about that. 
They're like, yeah, just go do that. You don't want to spend a ton of money with me building some custom thing. It almost never happens though. But if I don't ask that question, I don't have their language. So I have to ask the question and they'll tell me why they ruled out. Yeah, we looked at all the off the shelf stuff. Oh, Salesforce isn't going to work for you. No, it's blah, blah, blah. And they'll give me all these reasons. It's extremely helpful when I go to write a proposal because I, I know exactly what their goals are. I know what they've ruled out. And I can speak really, really clearly about the benefits of each of the options that I'm going to, not what I'm going to do in the deliverables. I can talk about the benefits of doing it this way, option one, or this way, option two, or this way, option three. So which benefits do you want? Like instead of giving them an ultimatum, like, oh, for this, you know, 60 second spot, it's going to be $150,000. And then it's like, it, it sets them up to be able to compare you apples to apples against the next agency. And they just start thinking about price. Man, I, I so wish I had uh, learned these lessons that you're teaching years and years ago, because I can think of one specific example where the nuances of the why and getting clear about what those nuances are, are so valuable because I can remember when we used to do, uh, my agency did a lot of promos for TV networks. And we, mm -hmm. and we no noticed along the way, we would get really good ratings. So the TV network would come back and say, oh, the show premiered and the numbers were great. The promo was really successful. And we started hearing these network people say, ratings, ratings, ratings. This is what's important. This is what's important. Yeah. Okay. So we started yeah. having sales conversations where we would tell them, hey, we're going to get great ratings. This is what we're great at. We're experts at getting ratings. Only after a year of chasing this fool's errand did I realize that the suits at the network, meaning the SVPs and stuff, sure, they were all about ratings. But guess what? All of the people that were the creatives, so the producers, the creative directors, they talked ratings, but they didn't give a crap about ratings. <laughs> they wanted to create beautiful work that won awards that their friends talked about and created buzz and so forth. And it, it, it was this long journey of, gosh, everyone's talking about ratings. Let's go sell the fact that we can help produce better ratings. But we, yeah, that's we, the socially acceptable answer. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. And is that, is that common, right? Do you find it common that often the why that's really influencing the buying decision, the purchase decision? The yeah. Pricing? When you're in a, when you're selling to someone inside of a big organization, that's extremely common. I can't think of a situation where it's pretty rare for that to not exist. <laughs> that, that, that there's a more nuanced why that's below the surface. I'm supposed to say this, but actually the real reason is this. Right. And, and it can be a little bit of both. It could be, you know, a personal motivation, a business motivation. Uh, the, the bottom line question is who's paying you? So if it's the suits, then keep talking about ratings. But if the producers are hiring you, then you want to speak both languages. You want to be able to give them a story that they can sell up the chain to get the budget approved, you know, the rating story. But you also want to get at what's going to make this uh, a gigantic home run for them. Because think about it. If you, I mean, we talked about the sort of uh, the doomsday scenario before when everything goes sideways and you're, you're only halfway done and the budget's gone and everybody's fighting and, you know, they're telling you we're going to split the difference or you're going to keep working until it's done and we don't care, you know, we're not paying you another dime. We're not giving you your last check until this is done. So all of that, that's the doomsday scenario. Yeah, been there. But imagine the, imagine the, the flip side where you know how to satisfy this person who you're working with that, that got the budget approved or gave you this money and you just blow it out of the water. You like crush it. 
because you know what to crush. So, all right, great. So we crushed it. We gave the story to the suits and they're loving it. And you got this award and now you, maybe you're going to get hired at this better company that you really would rather be at. If you know all of that stuff, that person's going to keep on hiring you forever. You know, they're good. They'll take you to the new company when they move because you're delivering huge satisfaction. You're, you're, they are happy that they hired you instead of what happens in a lot of cases where you don't really know what you're trying to achieve. You just billing by the hour. It's kind of unsatisfactory. You get to a point where you're like, well, I just did what you told me to do. And they're like, yeah, it's true. You, you just, you did everything we asked. It just didn't do anything. It was kind of a waste of money. Like they might not blame you, but that's very dissatisfying. And would they hire you again? Like why? They're just going to be feel burned by the whole situation even if they don't blame you. And that wasn't the kind of business I wanted to run. So I, I just stopped. I was like, Oh, if I stopped doing hourly and I actually put some skin in the game and say, this is gonna be $200,000 and I'm not, there'd be no change orders. No problem. We are going to get to, we're going to score the goal. We're going to march down the field and we're going to end up in the end zone and it's not going to cost you a penny more than $200,000. And I think it's going to take me six months. If it turns out to take me two years, that's my problem. Mm, wow. Yeah. I mean, you're obviously creating an amazing advocate in that client when you, when you're fighting for what really makes them tick and their mm -hmm. deeper, deeper, deeper why. And like you said, wherever they go for the rest of their, their career, they're going to say, Jonathan is the guy. You got to talk to Jonathan, even if they don't need me, you got to, you just, that's your guy. It's the only yeah, option. That's your guy. Yeah. No, no question. So let me ask this question. Cause here's a, here's a bugaboo. This is a, this is a tough one. Mm -hmm. Let's say we're, um, let's say it's a $200,000 engagement like you were describing. Um, mm -hmm. but if I run a studio and I, my, I have a value conversation, what's the outcome you want? Okay. I, and I do my anchoring. So my low price is this, my meat, my, Gold, silver, bronze, let's call it. And my gold is $200,000. And the client mm -hmm. says, that's great. Let's, let's proceed with that. Mm -hmm. And then they drop this one. Can I see a breakdown? <laughs> <laughs> I, would say, I would say, I don't know. What, what do you need that for? Like, what kind of a breakdown? Well, often it's, can I, I need to see a breakdown of the time, the materials, the rates, the roles. It's, it's just, obviously, they're just, they're just looking for something to, I think, justify why is this $200,000? I need to have some piece of paper that I can mm -hmm. show that I'm not just signing off on some giant expenditure for no reason if I could get it for half that. Yeah. So if you, if you are at that point, you've kind of lost, you haven't lost complete control of the conversation because you said they approved it. Mm -hmm. But usually when you get some kind of like, but how many hours is it going to take? You're losing control of the conversation. They're starting to think about costs the price that they're getting ready to accept or they just accepted uh, is eating up a little bit too much of the value in their minds. Even though that's a hazy number in their minds, it's starting to feel a little tight. So it's, in other words, it's not a no brainer. So if you, if the value to them is uh, let, let's just say roughly, and this is art, not science, but let's say roughly they feel like this is going to be worth, this is a million dollar project for the, for the company. And you come in at like $850,000 for the project. And it doesn't leave them a lot of breathing room. If, you know, there's some risk that it might not succeed. Even, you know, you might be guaranteeing certain pieces, uh, but it still might not achieve their ultimate end goal. So there's not a lot of wiggle room there for them. And they can start to get nervous. If they started to do that to me, there's a couple of things I would do. It depends on the specifics, but a couple, here's a couple of ideas. One, I would drill into why they want that. Like, well, how could I provide that to you? I don't understand why it would matter, but let me, let me try and work with you on that. Like, yeah. Why do you need it? Yeah, that's smart. Prob 
probably pretty quickly, they're not going to have a good reason. Um, they're going to be forced to say, well, because it just seems like a really high price. And it seems like a lot of money for what we think you're going to do. And you can say like, well, we don't really know what we're going to do yet. This is, we're going to, the whole first phase is going to be discovery. We have, we're taking a big risk here because this could end up taking twice as long as we all think it's going to take. And we don't want to put that risk on you. We want to take that risk um, because that's the way we work. We feel like we're the experts in this thing. And if we can't do it the way we say we're going to do it, we feel like we shouldn't make any extra money just because it takes longer. That's, so a, kind of, that's a great answer. Yeah, I love that one. Because now you're really helping them. You're finding that sort of win-win of like, hey, we're dealing with a lot of ambiguities as well. Right. Yeah. You're, I mean, you need to make explicit how much risk you're taking on by giving a fixed price. So you need to make it like, you know, you're taking away a ton of risk from them. Normally, they take all the risk because you're billing by the hour. If it takes you longer, no big deal. You just make more money yeah, until, right. they, until they get so angry that it, it turns into a fight. But for a long time, you just make more money. You're no risk at all. Now let's, so, let's, did, did you have another thought you were going to share on that? A quick, a quick one is that if they, if they start talking about like, gee, it seems really expensive. You say, well, pick option two, you know, it, take a, take a smaller option and we can sort of test drive the relationship. And later, if you want to, you know, change your mind, we can revisit it and we can always repropose something later. If you want to just, we'll start with the strategy session or we'll start with the, whatever the initial option one is, we'll just start there and, and that'll be less risky for you. Right? Yes. Okay, great. And the last thing, the third thing you can do is reiterate whatever it is your guarantee is. So if you're like, you know, so if somebody's like, oh, I want to take your course, but I'm afraid I'm not the right fit for it. I'm afraid things are going to get busy. And I'll say, well, I have a money back guarantee. Like first 30 days, you can just get your money back. So like, what's the risk? Well, I thought so the, those three things. that idea of bringing up the options, Right. It's like, oh, well, you guys chose the gold option, but if you want to go to the silver, that's fine. That's fine. What's nice about that is in a sense, what you're saying is that's the reason we gave you the silver option, right? Mm -hmm. We are the experts. We did think ahead. We knew that this might be a little tough for you to swallow. So that's why we gave you this option. Like Mm -hmm. we saw this coming before you did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If they, if they pick option three and they're starting to act like they're getting nervous about the price, then there's not as much value there as you thought. Right. So sure. Sure. Calculated a little bit on the value and they're getting a little skittish. So just uh, that scares me too. Like, I don't want that because that recipe for dissatisfactions. Maybe we should just do the silver. Now, what about this? Let's say the person lives in some sort of a world where I don't know if, I don't know if it's as hardcore as procurement. Okay. Mm-hmm. Because anybody that's in a world where procurement's involved, I pretty much tell them you, you need to go find a new client. Yeah. Let's just say that they're in a world where it's, maybe a quasi procurement dimension to the way purchase decisions are made. Mm-hmm. Is there, is there any validity in saying, we'll tell you what, let me give you a breakdown of the phases where you're really not giving hours and rates, but at least you're giving them some sense of we're going to spend 20,000 on discovery and 50,000 on creative development and $200,000 on this live action shoot. And at least you're giving them something. Does no, that, yeah. that effective? Yes and no. I, you ha- I was right with you until you started talking about deliverables. Right. So, yeah. So <laughs> I figured you, you would be. So be, tell me why. <laughs> you do want to have deliverables in the proposal or like things you're going to do because you want to paint a picture in the proposal of what it will be like to work together. Um, and also, if there's anything specific that they mentioned in their self-diagnosis that you believe is a good diagnosis, you want to put it in there so you know that you're, you're communicating back to them that you heard what they said, that you that you're professional, you kept track of it, you put it in there. 
But the emphasis needs to be at each option on the benefits. The, so what's the benefit of a live action shoot? What are the alternatives that you could do instead? Stock footage or um, something remote or who knows? Like, I don't know what all the options are. But there's a reason you suggested that one. And that reason is based on the objectives that they told you in the sales interview when you had a why conversation with them. So the benefits of that live action shoot are this. Are those things worth the money? Are the benefits worth the money? You want to stand out. You want to have something custom. You want to have something real and hot and young and cool. And you right, know, right, right. Is the va- is the value still there based on our original conversation, or or has something changed? Right. And another thing that you sort of implied is that um, people do sometimes need to know what the timeline is going to look like. I'm I'm anti deadline for projects because it's too much of a collaboration agreeing to a deadline is like agreeing that it'll be sunny on a bride's wedding day. It's not possible. So, but what you can do is you can give an idea of like option one is going to take at least three months or option one is going to take at least three weeks or option one is going to take at least this long. But if, you know, if people go on vacation and we can't get answers to questions, it's going to drive the timeline out. But what we will do is say, we'll start with a, a, a sort of a, you call it like a Gantt chart of like the, what the timeline looks like with dependencies. I'll do something like that for a bigger project and say, um, you know, anything that changed this, this is actually the ideal. It will not go this fast. It will have never been on a project that didn't get extended because things happen. So this is the like best case scenario. If everything goes perfectly and we get every answer to every question we need instantly, it'll take at least this long. And on our weekly reviews or whatever our status meeting is, I will keep this updated. The first thing we will talk about in each meeting is how the timeline's looking so that you can make, you know, adjustments for like whatever other ad buys you have to do or, you know, whatever the, whatever the case might be. So that they can, they still need to plan like businesses still need to plan. So I will sometimes um, give them like a timeline sort of like that and, and, but the thing you want to stay away from is pricing milestones or pricing individual deliverables or anything like that. It doesn't break down like that. It doesn't, it doesn't really make sense. No, I would agree because you're right. Uh, if you did a, let's say you're doing a brand development. If you created the logo, the, de- the deliverable called, we're going to put your logo on a banner or something has no relation to all of the work and creativity and value yeah. that was created leading up to that. So how mm-hmm. do you, how do you create a relationship to that? It, it, I would agree. It sounds like a, a hornet's nest. Yeah. It's like, I I mean, what's the, what's the old quote? Like if you, if you took all of the minerals and chemicals and everything that made up the human body, it would only cost like $4 to buy in a in a grocery store, you know, but is that, it's, that's not the point. You're like missing the whole point if that's what you're worried about. Yeah, sure. Well, what's your, what's your advice? You know, if you think of someone who lives in in my world and let's Mm -hmm. say if they're, they could be again, a multi-million dollar a year studio, but they're, they're still, if you really take a look at the way they do their proposals and their, their bids and so forth, they're still really stuck in a, an hourly mode where mm-hmm. it's these kinds of rates, these kinds of hours, and maybe these things even get, still get presented to the clients in some sort of a, here's our proposal and there's mm-hmm. phases and breakdowns and hours and all these kinds of things. Yeah. Um, even though these may be $400,000 projects, uh, where does someone start? Because obviously when you, come to a business like that and you say, we're going to ditch hourly. We're going to start doing a value pricing thing. They Mm -hmm. just immediately think, Whoa, you're, you're messing with my fundamental business. There's so much risk here that if, if this doesn't work, my business could fail. Right. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you go into a comp, when you've got a, a business that's been operating on an hourly basis, it is just, it's like the, it's like the entire company is infected with the hourly assumption. It's, it's like everywhere, like a cancer. It's in all of your systems. It's in all of your training material for new employees, all of your onboarding. It's in all of your performance reviews. It's everywhere. It's, it's in your software. It's, it's, it's everywhere. You can't, someone like me can't just come in and be like, okay, drop the hammer. Okay, we're not doing that anymore. Right. It, you, be, you get you my know, point. Right. Yeah, so where, where do we start? <laughs> right. So the way, the way that I have people start, and this is true for firms or even for solo individuals is to start disconnecting time from money, but not going straight to value pricing because value pricing is that sales conversation. It takes practice. And when you screw it up, it hurts because you end up pricing yourself too low. Like that's what happens. Hmm. So you want to do when you, when you do start with value pricing, I tell everybody like start with a small project, uh, preferably with a client you've worked with before. If you can convince them to switch from hourly to value, you fix price, do it small to get a feel for it. Cause you're going to probably need six sales conversations before you start, before the light bulb really goes on and you're like, Oh, that's what he was talking about. So in the meantime, there are plenty of other ways to disconnect time from money, to stop trading time for money inside of the organization on a sort of a, consider it like a product. You can think of it on a project by project basis, but it's really starting to productize your services. So if you, if you look at across all of your projects, the kind of things that you do and look for patterns, look for um, types of work that you have to do the same way. Every time you might already have an SOP for it. It might be just like, boom, you just crank it out every time there's some variations, but really it doesn't matter who the client is. It always goes like this. The scope is basically fixed and then look for your most profitable clients. Like who are the clients who stand to benefit the most from this? I always say like, you know, I could do a website for Joe's pizza or I could do a website for Domino's and Domino's is going to get a lot more value out of it than Joe's pizza. So if you look at your client base, who do you have, who are your best customers? Who are the ones that get the most value out of the kinds of things that you do and then create a, take this, take this service that you, that has like a pretty fixed scope, real clear deliverable. Like there's a, there's an SOP for it. It's very clear and systematized and package that up as almost like you would package up um, uh, an info product or a lamp, you know, just like here are the benefits of this product. You know, it solves, it's for this, this kind of person, your ideal buyer, it solves these kinds of pains. So if, if you're one of these types of people and you're experiencing these kinds of problems and you'd like for those problems to go away and you'd like for your world to look like this instead, well, this is a possible solution. Here's what it would look like. Here are the benefits of this thing. And here's the price. And right on your website, you put a price for this thing. It's $1,500, it's $15,000, it's $100,000, whatever it is. And the person, and then you drive those, you drive that kind of traffic to um, this page, whether it's through outreach or inbound marketing, whatever it is, you're driving the right kinds of people to this page. So they look at it and immediately they're like, oh yeah, you know, like, are you a blah, blah, blah that is suffering from, you know, are, are you uh, in your third term? are you in your third trimester and you're having severe back pain? Like the right person when they land on that page is going to scream, heck yeah, that is me. Mm -hmm. Don't you wish you could take pain medication, but you can't because you're pregnant? Yes. <laughs> right. Right. You do that with one of your services so that there's a, in your mind or, or explicitly on the page, but at least in your mind, there's a very clear ideal buyer for this particular productized service. And then you just sort of describe it and write up a sales page for it. 
have a call to action, which is whatever, you know, apply now for positions, spots are limited, or um, click here to email me, or click here to set up a phone call directly in my calendar, whatever the call to action is, click here to find out more. There's like an onboarding email course before you're even allowed to buy it. Whatever the thing is, and drive traffic to this page. And the focus is really more around, it's, it's less around, um, I create videos for big companies. That's not, it's not what it's about. It's more about, I solve this problem for these kinds of people. If you have that problem and you would gladly pay $15,000 if you thought I could fix that problem, then you're in the right place. So what, what ends up happening here is you start, you create a situation that's time and money are disconnected on a very fixed scope, might not be small, but it'd be relatively fixed scope project that you can sell like a couch and it changes the whole way you market this particular thing. And I'm willing to bet, because this is what happens with most people, is they get, they're like, whoa, this is way better than what I've been doing. <laughs> That's it's right. So much yeah. better. Yeah. yeah. So let me give you an example, because I think this is very similar to what you just described. Because I've had a few clients where, let's just say in our industry, it's mm -hmm. very common that clients will, again, they'll reach out with, well, we have this problem, we need to launch a product or you know, get a new show on air. And often there's this sort of request, veiled request to pitch. Like, yeah, do you have, guys have some ideas? Can you send us some ideas? And if we like, if we like one, we'll, we'll award you the, the $200,000 commercial. And so, of course, as the owner who's addicted to cash, let's, let's be honest, mm -hmm. thinks, yeah, 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 we'll get you some ideas. And then they go do all this free spec work and they, yeah, they do script writing and they develop creative and, and sometimes yeah. they win the job, sometimes they don't. Right. So here's the shift that I've been, I've been watching with some smart firms. And I've done this a few times with a few of my clients where we say, you know what, why don't we create something? Because like you said, coming up with ideas, writing scripts, create, doing some initial visual explorations, that's a fairly fixed scope. Mm -hmm. It's really not all that different. We're going to spend a few days of this and a few days of that. We kind of know we've been through this drill a hundred times. Yep. What if we instead told that client, well, let's have a why conversation, really figure out what they're trying to go for and then come back with the recommendation called, you know what we actually recommend is go through our XYZ process. Yep. And yeah, we five day sprint or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And we package that thing up. It's, we say it's $20,000 and includes all the copywriting and the ideas and the whatever that's going to essentially solve your problem so that really what we're doing is just charging for a discovery phase that normally is given away for free. Right. And you're bringing up a really important point. Yes, I agree that that is, we're on the same page there and you're bringing up a really important point, which is you've mentioned the word production a bunch of times and I, I've got a, a webinar. People can look for it later. It's called um, the altitude of involvement and it's for people who do creative work like this, any kind of knowledge work really like independent professionals or firms and there's these three sort of altitudes of involvement that you can engage on which you can engage with a customer. The bottom level is maintenance. And that's where you're, you're maintaining a status quo that has been in place. And then the middle tier is implementation. So that would be like building stuff, um, production, uh, creating videos, executing creative, creating, creating assets. That's the middle tier. It's more valuable. It usually delivers a lot of cash, but it's not super high profit. Mm. Okay. And the bottom level is terrible profit. Support means is terrible. It's like you have to almost orient your entire business around that and operate at a mass scale to get any kind of real money out of it. 
uh, I'm sure there are plenty of exceptions, but just in general, the middle tier, the building implementation layer, when you're actually creating the videos is <clears throat> a lot of cash because everybody can see lots of work is happening. It's like when the building is being built, like clearly a lot of work is happening, but it's not super high profit. It's good cash flow. It's bad profit. And that stuff is where you're creating a new status quo. So the company has been in a, a state and now they're trying to move to a new state, state of affairs. So that's this implementation layer. What you just described is the next layer up, the strategy layer or design or planning. And that's where you're designing, you're, you're working with the client or perhaps just doing for them. You're creating a new status quo. You're deciding what the new status quo is going to be. And that is really important because it has, down, has downstream effects all the way through that model. So if you screw it up, in other words, you're going to be wasting a crazy amount of money later on. So getting it right is really important. And if it, a good customer is going to recognize the risk that they're under of making a bad, you know, making a mistake around this area. So they'll pay money to hedge that bet. They'll pay money to buy insurance that they are not going to, you know, fall down that rabbit hole and lose all this money later. You know, it's like building a building without our, without blueprints. Like, why not not have blueprints? We could just just start building. You know. Yes, I, I love that. I love what you're what you're saying because here's the other thing that you and I know is that for people that are truly experts, and this is their genius of doing this high-level strategy thing, often that engagement that, say, we've packaged for a $20,000 uh, kind of fixed scope thing. Yep. I know there's some creative entrepreneurs that in a few hours, they sit down, they brainstorm, they get with their, their creative team, they bang out some visuals, and they're done. And then in, yeah. one, in one day, they're generating $20,000. Super high profit. Yeah, super high profit. And what I also know is that when the clients receive that deliverable, if you will, uh, it's, got, it's got a huge value in their minds attached to it. Because like yep. you said, it's like we just put a lot of money into the architect and the draftsman creating our blueprints. We're so excited about what's now possible that this was worth every penny. Mm -hmm. 100%. Yeah. And the, now the downside. So I said in the, the middle tier like maintenance is very low profit. It's, it's, it's a mass market type of move, uh, a volume. It's a volume move. The, the middle tier has lots of good cash flow around it because people can see lots of work is, is being done, but it's not um, great for profits. This top level typically is harder to sell, not as good as cash flow, but the profits are so high for the amount of labor that you put in and the, the profits to the client because it's so valuable to them that you can, you can do, you don't have to have them back to back. Like you wouldn't have them back to back. That would almost be weird. Usually what happens is you get a sprinkling of these really high profit engagements that may or may not lead into an implementation layer for people that do have employees. Um, but also you can supplement that income in other ways that are very strategic, very high level, very advisory. So um, if I was going to say there's a downside to doing the strategic type work is that it's not as easy to sell. Uh, it's, you're not going to find as many people who value it as the building the implementation phase because everybody knows they need somebody to build it. Yeah. Like it's much more obvious. Yeah. It's, it's hard. It'd be hard to build a, a volume based business where you say every year we know we're going to do 50 of these engagements. Um, yeah. No, it turns you, the volume, the volume play at the strategic level is that you write a book or you have a course. <laughs> yeah. Right. 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 And you go on the speaking tour, that kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. But I, I think um, it's interesting. I was doing a podcast with Tim Hughes. He, he's a guy based in London who is called the brief doctor. And he's the guy that you, that you bring in to s turn around a crappy creative brief 
that you get from, <laughs> from a client, okay? Yeah. Or, or he's the guy that you hire uh, because you are the client and you, your internal people can't figure it out and you need him to get your 20-page brief down to a one-page brief so that you can put the... Yeah, brief, brief. <laughs> but I thought it was such an interesting example of you could hire somebody like that to be part of your strategic $20,000 thing where a few thousand dollars is going to help you generate an amazing creative brief that lays the groundwork for an amazing result that you're going to deliver later in implementation. So those, mm -hmm. it's easy to argue those investments that at the early stages may be five, 10, $15,000 that mm -hmm. lead to seemingly huge dollars, $200,000. But to your point, the, that early engagement is actually the more profitable one because the implementation oh, yeah. is back is where you're spending all the money on t time and materials and people way and more all. risk. Way yeah. more risk. Yeah. 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 So I, I, I love that, uh, that one, two, three. And I also like the idea of one can lead to two can lead to three if you want it, if it makes if you sense want to, right. A soloist usually can only operate at most at two adjacent levels at a time at most. And, and they should always be moving up to the top one. Like so their marketing should all be focused on the top one that they can, uh, that they're confident in delivering and be pushing away from that. Like basically it's legacy clients that keep you held down to the lower levels of involvement. So yeah, you want to shed those over time. Yeah, you want to shed those and always upgrade, right? Because if you can move, if you're, especially if you're small, if you can move up to that number one level, mm -hmm. I think for a lot of people, that's the dream of mm -hmm. gosh, you mean I could just charge people a lot of money for my thinking and I would say, yeah, yeah, over time, if you're truly an expert and you truly have all this knowledge and wisdom and experience that you can bring to bear to put people yeah. on the right path, there's enormous premiums and margins to be commanded there. Yeah, you need to be a recognized authority, which, you know, there's, there's a, a way to do that. It's like a known path, you know, authority, author, write a book. <laughs> it's like, it doesn't, doesn't take a genius, but you know, it, it's a lot of work, but that's what you want to become an authority. You want to become the go-to person for the thing that you do in the, whatever the small pond it is that you pick as your, your niche, your pigeonhole. You want to pick that and, and just own it and just be the obvious choice. Like there's, you're not going to have competition or price sensitivity. If you're the obvious choice, like people, people want to buy the best. A lot of people want to buy the best. So if you're obviously the best, you're probably going to get enough work. I like to uh, encourage people, look, just charge like you're the best because guess what? When somebody buys it, you're going to have to step up and be the best. Yeah, it makes me a little nervous, but I do appreciate the point. <laughs> <laughs> right. I get, I get it. I get yeah. it. So do you think in our lifetime, there's any chance we're going to kill off the billable hour? I'm banking on it. Are you? I don't know. I don't know. That's my mission. My mi I, if, if that's what it's said in my headstone that I helped bury the billable hour, I'd be all over that. I'd be very happy. <laughs> Wow. So you really do attach a lot of uh, misery or, or at least compromise with. I, I mean, this sounds like dark, but I honestly see it as a cancer on professional services. It's, it is holding back a massive amount of wealth creation. There's no doubt in my mind. It, it makes perfect sense. The financial incentives are misaligned. It's bad for the client. It's bad for the provider because it puts an artificial limit on your income. Like who wants that? You know, it's, I, I think it's awful. And yeah, there are a lot bigger problems in the world, but for whatever reason, this one is the one that caught my fancy. And well, there's something actually quite beautiful in what you're saying because you're right. If you as a, say, creative entrepreneur are incentivized in a way that's upside down, you're incentivized to be slow, to take more time, to not produce the biggest result at every turn because that makes you more money. That's actually 
holding you back from the value yeah. that you could create in the world. Mm -hmm. And everyone listening to this is going to say, no, 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 I work as fast as I can. And I, I'm like, yeah, I, I understand that that's how you feel. But just to like put a thought in your head, when I used to bill by the hour, I can remember clearly getting to the end of a four hour period or whatever and being like, oh, I just made 800 bucks. Instead, when I get to the end of a four hour period now, I'm like, I just lost 800 bucks. So if I am giving people a fixed price for something, there's a whole like region of your brain that lights up to figure out how to optimize what it is that you're doing in a way to deliver as good or better output with less effort. There's no part of my brain that used to, uh, an infinitesimal part of my brain, just because it's part of my personality to be efficient, that, that I would do that when I was billing by the hour. Every hour I worked was like more money in the bank. Now every hour I work is less money in the bank. So it pays, literally pays me to optimize procedures, to uh, outsource low-level work, to in invest in VAs or freelancers to do certain things, and to optimize just down to the most valuable things that my, my customers are looking for and my clients are looking for, and just do those things. I know people think that they're efficient just because they, you know, they buy new computers and they're fast. They just don't like feeling slow. But I promise you, you'll get way more efficient when you feel like you're losing money with every keystroke. Yeah, I was going to say it might be strong to say people are lying to themselves. Maybe we deceive ourselves. You just, it's, your brain is just not, it just doesn't, the problem solving mechanism just doesn't get engaged for that type of thinking. You just don't. I mean, why would you? You'd lose money. Yes. Yes. And it's in your brain is always going to be processing the short term, you know, that the trade-offs of to, to yeah. the long term don't really enter into your, right. your mind. But I'm, I'm wondering if what, maybe what you were really just saying back there was that shifting from hourly to a value based mm -hmm. pricing model mm -hmm. is really the thing that's going to force you to, to innovate simply. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I think that's a, that, and maybe that's the great, parting thought is to help everyone understand that to be, to truly have a great impact on your clients' businesses and to be the best version of yourself as a creative entrepreneur, how are you going to set yourself up to constantly innovate? And I do think value pricing forces you, you just have no choice. You're, you're going to have to innovate all the time. Right. <clears throat> yeah. And it's, but, and it's a win-win because it's in your client's benefit too because you can deliver better results faster and that's the time value of money. Like that's good for them. It's good. It's, yeah. It's good for everybody. Well, Jonathan, I'm going to say thank you big time for joining us. It's been fun getting the perspective from somebody who comes from software <laughs> and translating yeah. how these principles apply to all kinds of services, even creative services in the world that I live in. Yeah. So thank you for being, being generous to, with your ideas and, and how you share your knowledge uh, for people that want to, Find out more. I know you mentioned the Altitude of Involvement yep. webinar. Is that, that, did I get that right? It is. Yeah, you did. You can go to jonathanstark.com slash altitude and there's a little description there. Okay, cool. And I would also recommend, how do they get on your daily email? I know people are thinking, yeah, but this is a, a guy that's teaching software developers. I would just say, trust me, it's killer insights on hourly versus value and so forth. How, would, how do people get on that same list that I'm on? Yeah, the first place to go is to valuepricingbootcamp.com and that'll give you like a little bit of an onboarding sequence. It talks about these ideas um, and then you'll end up on my daily list, which is like a live broadcast I write, write and send every day. 
Yeah, I, I'm constantly impressed. Someday I need to pick your brain. Just like, how do you, how do you do that? How do you keep up? Because you're you create a lot of value in the world on a daily basis, and I uh, I respect that. Thanks. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again, Jonathan, and uh, cheers. Uh, thanks for being on the Rev Thinking podcast. My pleasure. You've been listening to the Rev Thinking Podcast. For more information on upcoming accelerators, events, or to learn how RevThink advises creative entrepreneurs like you, connect with us at RevThink.com. 